For the past few weeks, we have been pondering what it means to be Jesus' disciple, to walk the walk with Jesus. I chose that phrase because it is easy for us Christians to talk the talk, to say all the word, right words, words like love God and love your neighbor. It's something else again to walk the walk, to actually live out those words as a disciple of Jesus. If we want to be a disciple, we have to follow him. That means that we have to be in relationship with Jesus, to pay attention to him, to trust him. And in order to do that, we need to try to learn about him, to become more like him. And it really helps to have the support and encouragement of others, to be a part of the body of Christ. But it's not enough to just listen to Jesus and try to be like him. We also have to act like him. Being a disciple of Jesus means joining him as ministry and engaging in service and mission. In truth, doing service has always been part of the Christian life. Jesus himself said, and whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve. And from the very beginning, Christians have sought to do that. Such service often takes place in the everyday life of a congregation as people serve on committees, sing in the choir, act as greeters and ushers, teach Sunday school, work rummage sales, make repairs, clean the kitchen, visit the sick and homebound, it could go on and on, right? It's one way that we demonstrate our love for each other as well as for Jesus, and I'm grateful for the many ways that each of you serve our congregation. Joining Jesus in mission, however, means more than simply helping out at church. Most of Jesus' ministry was done among strangers, sharing God's love and help with people whom Jesus did not know. To walk the walk as his disciple, therefore, means getting out of our church and getting out of our comfort zone and loving our neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be. It means being sent out to make a difference to the community and in the world. In a commentary on this passage, theologian R. Alan Culpepper notes, being sent out is a natural consequence of being with Jesus. The Christian calling never finds its fulfillment in one's own worship, nurture, and piety, but always in the extension of God's grace and love to others. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, would agree. He felt strongly that Christians have a duty and a privilege to engage in what he called works of mercy. He once wrote, faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. This commandment have we from Christ, that he who loves God, love his brother also, and that we manifest our love by doing good to, unto all men, especially to them that are of the household of faith. And in truth, whosoever loveth his brethren, not in word only, but as Christ loved him, cannot but be zealous of good works. Wesley didn't just talk the talk. Far from it. He cared for the poor, giving away most of his money over his lifetime. He visited the sick and organized groups to do the same. He founded schools and sought to better the conditions of those who worked in the mines or who were imprisoned. He spoke out against the slave trade and against war. He was passionate about serving others 
as Christ served them. He was very passionate. And to be sure, not many of us have Wesley's drive. In fact, most of us, myself included, have a list of perfectly good reasons why we are not going about doing good all the time. Reasons such as, there's only one of me, I don't have the time, I don't have the money, I'm not ready yet, I don't know what to do, I'd probably make a mess of things, I'm just not up to the task, I'm not good enough. Any of those sound familiar to you? Well, if they do, take comfort in the fact that we're not the only ones to feel this way. When God tapped Moses to bring the Hebrew people out of slavery, Moses brought up one objection after another and then finally said, oh God, please send someone else. The prophet Jeremiah protested that he was too young to go to the people of Israel. And as for the prophet Jonah, well, he just ran away. He did. I wonder if Jesus' disciples felt a little like doing that too. For days they had traveled with Jesus, walking with him from village to village, listening to him teach, watching him heal, and learning about the kingdom of God. And then one day, Jesus did something different. He called them all together and told them that they were to go out on their own. Now, there may have been some of them that were really eager to just get out there and prove their worth, but I suspect that many of them felt a little daunted by the tasks that Jesus gave them. I mean, clearly Jesus felt that discipleship was not a spectator sport. He fully intended that his followers would join him in ministry. In fact, Luke tells us that later on, Jesus would send 70 of his disciples, there were more than 12, um, to go ahead of him to the village that he intended to visit. It seems apparent, however, that the 12 who made up his inner circle were to do hands-on ministry in villages to which Jesus would not go. Their task was twofold, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, to share the hope that they had found in Jesus and to make that hope tangible by curing diseases and casting out demons. In other words, they were to do exactly what Jesus did. Now, if that sounds intimidating, yeah, I think probably some of them were felt a little intimidating. Fortunately, Luke tells us that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. The disciples had seen his power to heal at work. Now they would share that same power and authority. And at the same time, Jesus helped his disciples to stay grounded by instructing them to take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. They were to go out empty-handed, completely dependent upon the kindness and generosity of people in the villages to which they would be sent. In a commentary on this passage, David Lowes writes, I think there is something here that is quite instructive about the Christian faith. I'm not sure yet how to name it, but perhaps it's something like this. True power resides in dependence. That is, when you are confident of being taken care of by others, when you don't feel the need to hoard resources or take all kinds of preventive or preparatory measures, you are really free. 
Or maybe the reverse is equally true. When you have been empowered by God, you are free from worrying about everything and are strong enough to depend on others. Why? Simply because you trust that God will provide. And then he goes on, I don't know whether either Jesus or Luke intended this, but there is an interesting parallel between this scene with the disciples and Psalm 23, which we just heard played, where we as Jesus' most recent disciples are invited to say that because the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. Not wanting is what, the Jesus, what Jesus instructs the disciples to do here. Take nothing, nothing for the journey, nothing to eat, no extra clothes. Do not want but instead trust that God will provide for you through the hospitality of others. Do we have that kind of trust? Do we believe that we have the power to make a difference? You know, it's all too easy on Sunday morning to look at the empty pews and to say, well, we aren't big enough. And we don't have the resources. We don't have enough. When that happens, we need to remember that Jesus sent out only 12 disciples. He didn't send out 200. And in truth, it takes only one person to see, to see a need and respond in love and make a difference. Most of you live here in El Segundo or come been here for a while, and if you do, you're likely to be familiar with an organization called CASE, Community Alliance to Support and Empower. Twice each month, I believe that's correct, volunteers come together to offer food, to help with utility bills, and to give encouragement to those city residents who are living on the edge to keep them from moving into homelessness. I wondered uh, how CASE got started, and so I contacted Father Alexi Smith, who's the um, priest over at uh, St. Andrew's Roman Catholic, excuse me, Russian Greek Catholic Church. They are Roman Catholic as well. Um, <laughs> um, and, and he told me what had happened. Um, in 1992, he was relatively new in the city, and a local woman, Gail Church, confronted him at the uh, Boy Scouts Christmas tree lots. He still had his vestments on and she recognized him. Um, and she told him that she was concerned about that a downturn in the aircraft industry and in the economy in general would lead to homelessness in El Segundo. And she challenged Father Smith to do something about it. He took her at her word and gathered together a couple of other pastors and a really small group of lay people and they brainstormed, and that's when the idea for CASE developed. 26 years later, it's still going strong, still helping city residents to stay in their homes. Now, I want to ask, how many of you volunteer at CASE? I know there are a number of you who do. Yeah. Thank you for that service. Appreciate it. If you want to volunteer, let them know. They'll probably tell you how. Now, I want to tell you about another person that I met years ago. Her name was Frances Bond. Um, she was a member of Grace United Methodist Church in Long Beach where I served before I came here. I served there for seven years and she was in her 80s when I met her. When I came to that church I learned that there was a mission outreach called Project Hope and what it did is when people came to the church office, which they frequently did, and they said they were hungry, they received a voucher for a hamburger meal at a local fast food restaurant. 
And this just went on day after day after day. And after a while, it took me a while to find out how this started. It turned out that one day in a Bible study, people began to talk about uh, the needs of the poor in the community. And Frances suddenly sat up in her chair and said, our church needs to feed the people, the hungry in our community. And then she reached into her purse, took out some money, put it on the table and said, and I'm starting right now. Well, everyone was so surprised at what she said that they reached into their purses and their wallets and took out money and put it on the table. And that's how Project Hope, named for Frances' granddaughter, was born. That initial giving and the ongoing generosity of church members allowed the church for many years to provide 60 to 80 people a month with a warm meal with a warm meal, all because Francis had the compassion and the courage to say, I'm gonna do something. And then there is Karen Olson. As she rushed to a business meeting in New York City, Karen impulsively bought a homeless person named, homeless woman named Millie a sandwich and then took the time to listen. She was shocked to learn that Millie had not eaten since the day before. And when she told her sons about this experience, her 10-year-old said, well, why don't you find more people like that? And that weekend, she and her sons made 25 sandwiches and went out into the streets of New York and handed them out to people. The next weekend, it was 50 sandwiches, and then it was 100 sandwiches. And they got to know the people that, for whom they gave, to whom they gave sandwiches by name and listened to their stories eventually bought them Christmas gifts and, and even invited some of them to their home for Thanksgiving dinner. Now that's in New York City where Karen worked, but eventually she learned that in her, at, in her community um, in New Jersey, there were also a number of homeless families and she decided that she had to do something about it. She began meeting with people from local religious communities and brainstorming about what they might do and after the group failed to find a building that they could convert to a shelter, Karen thought, well, what if churches, what if churches and synagogues and other faith communities took turns offering hospitality to homeless families? She approached congregations with that idea and they signed on. A local YMCA agreed to provide showers and a family day center. A car dealer offered a discount on a van. And on October 27, 1986, the first interfaith hospitality network opened. 70% of the families served by that network found housing. A second network formed. Other congregations were to inspired to develop similar programs, and in 1988, Karen founded the National Interfaith Hospitality Network. In 2003, the name was changed to one you know well, Family Promise. We had the privilege of hearing um, Karen speak last night at Empty Bowls fundraiser for our local affiliate Family Promise of the um, South Bay. Um, and uh, hers was a very moving story. And it, the statistics of what has happened in the 30 years since Family Promise really, well, since the, it got started as the National Interfaith Hospitality Network are amazing. Since 1988, 600 congregations 200,000 volunteers in 43 states have helped some 900,000 people 
out of homelessness. That's a big number. And they're all families with children. I am really proud that our own congregation participates in this work. And I would like to ask if you're a volunteer, if done volunteering with that, would you raise your hand? A number of you have done that. I would encourage other of you to get involved. It's really amazing. And I have to say, as we listened to Karen's story, I was especially touched by when she spoke of the response of those whom Family Promise serves. And our local, our local um, affiliate actually has managed to provide, to help families, all the families that we've helped to find permanent housing, and they've stayed in that housing. So we've done, we, have a really good, we have a really good record. The national average is 82%, so we're good. So she said that one woman said to the volunteers, they made me feel accepted and loved. You could see God through them. Another woman, Jennifer, whom we know, she stayed at our church with her young son, Elijah, put her feelings about the program this way. It's just love. It's just love. That's what joining Jesus in ministry is all about. God's love made tangible. And that, as Jesus' disciples, is what we are about. Serving in love. Yes, serving those neighbors, those strangers is risky. Sometimes those whom we seek to serve fail to respond as we hope. Sometimes our effort will be ridiculed or rejected, and sometimes we lose hope. But that doesn't mean we should not try, that we should not love. So I have an invitation for you. Besides encouraging you to get involved in some of the things we already do, I invite you to look around as you walk through this community or whatever community you live in, to look around and ask yourself, what do I see? What don't I see? What do I smell? What do I hear? Use all of your senses. And as you do that, let questions or wonderings come to your mind. What needs are there? What possibilities are there? How could a difference be made in the community. I encourage you to ponder your observations and to pray about them and then to let God guide you. Who knows? You may find yourself like Father Lexi and Francis and Karen, serving in love and walking the walk with Jesus in ways that you never imagined. May it be so. Amen.